You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Mission Ridge. Uh, We are re-recording this sermon because we had technical difficulties, and that's... uh, that's a reality in life sometimes. Uh, being an IT guy from the Air Force 20 years, you know, you deal with, I guess, uh, technical difficulties uh, paid my wage for 20 years, so I can uh, face this with a smile and uh, press on through. Last weekend, we celebrated the life of my Uncle Larry, and I officiated his graveside service on Friday and funeral service on Saturday. It's the first time I performed a funeral service for someone this close to me. You could tell what people value by the stories that are told about them. As we celebrated my uncle's life, we heard stories about boats, skiing, Pontiac GTOs, family, coaching, soccer, forgiveness, prayer, Psalm 23, and the Lord. Larry valued every one of these things. And Uncle Larry's life told a story about himself, the people around him, and the God that he loved. But a point of moment came Saturday when my cousin Stacy shared with me that God had told her that he hadn't brought her home yet because of her dad. And this is going back a couple years, but Stacy was in a motorcycle accident. And honestly, she, uh, she barely survived. My cousin was riding on a little highway south of Spokane when a truck was on the side of the road, pulled out in front of her. She hit the truck broadside going 55. Now, as a result of the accident, she was in a coma for more than a week. She broke several bones and suffered head trauma, even though she was wearing a helmet. And she still is dealing with some of that head trauma today. It was through those challenging circumstances that Larry finally stopped wrestling with God and learned to fully trust him. And it was just a reminder to me that our stories are not our own. They are interconnected. We tell a story about what we value through the lives that we lead. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5 and verse 9. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now hang on to that last phrase there, out of darkness and into marvelous light, because we're going to see that 
come up again. But Peter starts by calling us living stones. They're being built up as a spiritual house. Together, our collective stories creates a mosaic of who our God is. When you live out your part and I live out my part, when we come together, so we have individual responsibility, but we have this corporate responsibility too. And when we come together, Missoula is going to see something about our God, depending on how you and I choose to live together. Then Peter calls us priests. Now, a priest's job is to help people to connect to God. A priest has to talk about their God in accurate ways. A priest orders their life in such a way so as to serve their God. We are called to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ through our lives. And again, we have individual responsibility, but we also have corporate responsibility that individually we proclaim who our God is to the people that we work with, within our own homes, within our neighborhood, where we like to play, like individually we tell a story, but also corporately we tell a story. And that's why we come together as a church. In this five-week series, we want to wrestle with this question. How do we tell an accurate story of who our God is? How do we do that? I came across this book this last week when I was unpacking and setting up my office as we've uh, unpacked our home and, and we're, we're down to the last few boxes, it looks like, of getting things on the shelves. And it seems like for me, the bookshelf is always the last thing that, that gets squared away. Well, maybe it's a garage. But uh, I found this book. It's something um, from 2009. It's an enlisted force structure. I grew up with this in the Air Force. It's, a, it's called the Little Brown Book. And uh, in it, it describes what the requirements are for an enlisted member, what the requirements are for a non-commissioned officer, what the requirements are to be a senior non-commissioned officer. And so this is a book that I actually kept in my pocket. It's something that kept close to me. It talks about um, just the core values of the Air Force. In the back, I have written down it talks about the core values of what it means to be an airman. But in the back, I have handwritten in the Air Force core values. Because if you, if you know what it means to be an NCO, or you know what it means to be an airman, or you know what it means to be a wingman or a senior non-commissioned officer, but you don't understand and live out the Air Force core values you're really not going to get promoted to that next rank. In fact, um, I spent 20 years in the Air National Guard, and each time that I went before a board to be promoted, I was going before my peers, people that knew me, and they knew what my life looked like. And so if the core values weren't part of me, if I wasn't living them out, they would know. And so... 
Air Force core value is integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. My mentors taught me to, to internalize this, to evaluate myself against these. And today, and through this series, I'm asking you to know and live out our values as a church. So this is our vision series. It's called, this series is called The Story We Tell. And I believe that the way we live together depicts a story to the people around us about who our God is. And, and it's either an accurate story or it's a distorted story the way we choose to live together. And it's one of those things that we'll always have to evaluate. It's one of those things we'll always have to adjust. But I want us to internalize, to own the values of our church. And we have four, I'm sorry, five core values. And so today we are looking at the first one. But again, I'm asking you, church, to internalize these, to own these, to evaluate yourself against these. We list them in our bulletin each week. And, and that's helpful so we could go back and review. But it's not just something that we read once in a while, but it's something that we actually need to live out. So core value number one, authenticity. Vulnerability and honesty, both as individuals and the corporate body, will be, our, will be core to our identity. Without vulnerability, growth is handicapped, trust is lost, and dysfunction is fostered. We are okay with not being okay. And what that last line means is we understand where we are. We're okay with the fact that we have growth. This is a starting point, but we're going to move forward. We're going to press on towards authenticity. Why is authenticity, vulnerability, and honesty so important to the disciple of Jesus? Well, to answer that question, I want to look at when Jesus first talked about what it looks like to be a disciple, his first sermon on this. And so we're going to look at the Beatitudes found in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 9 from the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, these seven Beatitudes describe what a healthy community of kingdom seekers will look like. In any given day, there will be those who need grace and those who need to extend grace. God's kingdom is open to people who recognize their need for God. They are poor in spirit and who mourn the pain that they've caused. And and for people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, over the years, I have looked at God's word 
and I've seen what God's called me to. And I've, and I've hungered and thirsted for that. I'm like, Lord, I know that's what you call me to. I want to be like that. I'm going to be that kind of person. And I'm not there yet. But I remember this promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so I trusted that God would continue his work in me. And there would become a day when I'd be satisfied with the fact that now I'm much closer, much closer to living the way I see Jesus living in the scriptures. So God's kingdom is open to people who recognize their need, who mourn, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But let's say you are one of those people who are coming to terms with your own mistakes, your brokenness and your need for God. What kind of environment do you need? What kind of people will best help you to connect to new truths about God and connect to God himself? Maybe someone who is meek. Maybe someone who is merciful. Maybe the pure in heart. Maybe a peacemaker. God's kingdom lived out here in Missoula will be made up of people who are recognizing their need and those who will graciously be there in the mess, in the brokenness, in God's redemptive work. And the truth is, we are both people at different times. Sometimes you're extending grace to me. Other times I'm extending grace to you. If we're going to be in community, if we're going to do care group together, if we're going to do life together, we're going to have to extend grace to each other and we're going to have to receive grace. And so this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus is establishing through his church. Now, prior to Jesus coming on the scene 2,000 years ago, there was a debate in the Jewish community that was championed by two rabbis, Shammai and Hillel. And the question they wrestled was this, how do we show God that we love him? How do we love him? No. What does that look like? And Shammai said it was through obedience. He said that you show God you love him by keeping Sabbath. By obedience to Sabbath. Now, what kind of worldview does that create when obedience is the measure of your love? The Pharisees that adhered to this line of thinking would go around policing everyone's actions, even, even people that they loved, maybe especially people that they loved. And I suggest that this creates a culture of shame and hiding. Why? Because we all fall short when it comes to obedience. We all fail. And if our failure to obey says, says something to others about how much we love God, how authentic are we going to be? But Jesus sides with Hillel. In Matthew 26, verses 36 to 40, Jesus has asked this question. It's really a question about this argument between these two rabbis that were on the scene before Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. He says the way you know you're loving God is by how you're loving your neighbor. That's the lens that you look through. What kind of culture does this create? What kind of culture is Jesus creating through his church? What does he want to create through his church? I was asked recently about a quote by Jim Putman in one of his books where he said that when he was in his early 20s, he saw more realness in AA than in church. Jim wanted to change that dynamic when he started pastoring Real Life in Pulse Falls. The question Jim's statement raised was this, what does this mean for church? And my answer, everyone needs a place to be real about their lives. As a lead pastor of this church, I need a place where I can be real about the struggles I face. I need a place where I can be authentic, vulnerable, and honest. You need that place. I need that place. We all need that place. And so that's the kind of church that we want to create here in Missoula. A friend of mine told me a story a few years ago about her brother or brother-in-law. I can't remember which. But he was working on the west side of, of Washington State as a pastor in a church. He goes to his senior pastor and he says, Pastor, my wife and I are having some struggles and we need, we need to talk to somebody. Who can we talk to on staff? Who could counsel us? And, and his pastor shook his head and said, you, you can't talk to anybody on staff. They can't know about this. Shocked, he said, well, then who can I talk to in town? And, and again, the answer was no, no one. You can't talk to anybody about this can't get out that you're having problems. You are a pastor. You know, my friends, we need to be a church that is real and authentic, honest about problems so that we can work through them, so that we can grow, so we can become better. Brene Brown writes on shame and vulnerability. She's a Christian writer. And in her book, During Greatly, she quotes Theodore Roosevelt's speech, Citizen in a Republic. And President Roosevelt says this, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. 
And so Brene Brown, she gets the title of her book from this speech. And Brene says that we too often want to hide from our failures or even hide from attempting something great for fear of failure. In short, we do not like vulnerability. Can I get an amen from the crowd? If we're going to do great things for God's kingdom, we need to embrace vulnerability. Brene suggests there are four myths of vulnerability. I want to run through those with you because I think they're uh, important. Myth number one, vulnerability is weakness. Myth one, vulnerability is weakness. Brene says to feel is to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. Truth is, we see vulnerability in others as courageous, but as weakness within ourselves. We have to move beyond this myth. Myth two, I don't do vulnerability. Brene's heard people say, I'm an engineer. We hate vulnerability. I actually think they say we engineer vulnerability out of the equation. And lawyers, we eat vulnerability for breakfast. Of course, there's always the guys that'll say, we don't do vulnerability. I think the real issue here is we struggle to like ourselves. I remember growing up in my teens and I would, I would look in the mirror and I loathed what I saw. There, was, there were times where I looked and I liked what I saw, but, there, but the majority of the time, I, I don't know, I, I loathed myself. And if I loathed myself, my brown eyes I wish were blue. My blonde hair I wished it was brown, dark. You know, I was tall. I wanted to be taller. I wanted my jump shot to go in. I loathed myself. And, and if I loathe myself, then how am I going to let someone else in? How do I let you in to see the real me when I don't want to see the real me? We're afraid to be known, to really be known. Myth three, vulnerability is letting it all hang out. And that's just not true. Vulnerability is based on mutuality and requires boundaries and trust. It is not oversharing. It's not purging. It's not indiscriminate disclosure. It's not celebrity-style social media information dumps. Vulnerability is about sharing our feelings and our experiences with people who have earned, with people who have earned the right to hear them. And church, my hope is that we would do the work to earn the right to hear people's stories so they would have a safe place to be vulnerable. Myth four, we can go it alone. Isn't this Montana? Isn't this the Montana way, going it alone? And, you know, there's something, you have to be rugged to live in Montana. I mean, I, I think uh, 
we can have our studded snow tires on four extra months in Montana compared to any place else I've lived. Like it is cold here, longer. You have to be able to be rugged to survive. But we even hold this value, ironically, when it comes to cultivating connection. Like, we don't want to connect. We need support. Every one of us. We need folks who will let us try new things, new ways of being without judging us. We need to be the church as Jesus called us to. You know, John uses a powerful metaphor about what it looks like to be honest and vulnerable and the powerful results of both in 1 John chapter 1. So let's take a listen to that. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. You know, I was in my basement this last week and, and wiring up some lights. And, you know, when the lights are off down there, there's no windows. It is dark. Just like that. Just dark. And if we think we're in the light, but we're lost and we're disoriented and, we, and things are confusing and we're not living according to God's design. Like they just, they don't match up. If we say we have fellowship while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And honestly, we're lying just to ourselves because everybody else can see it and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another So when I'm in the light and you are in the light, that's when we have real fellowship. When we're bouncing around in the darkness, we're lost and confused, and that's not real. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The reality is that when we choose to come into the light, we're actually going to see things about each other. I'm going to see your weaknesses. You're going to see mine But that's vulnerability, that's authenticity, that's honest. Good news is that in that fellowship with each other and with God, Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So again, light helps us to see things. When we come into close contact with God and with other followers of Christ, we're going to see things about ourselves that need to be healed, forgiven, and restored. And the good news is that's exactly what God wants to do, and that's exactly what Jesus wants to do through his church as we come together. Go back to the Beatitudes. We've got those who need grace and those who give grace. And honestly, we're both at the same time. We'll need and give grace about different things in our lives. But I think that we hope that if we stand on the edge of the light 
and hide the unsightly stuff. We'll be close enough to God to be quote unquote, okay, but not so close as to be noticed. The problem is, again, we're only lying to ourselves. You know, it's like if you come to visit our house, we're going to give you a tour of the house, but there's some rooms we're not going to show you because, because our kids live in those. And uh, Sunday when I said that, they were all shaking their head. Yeah, you don't want to go into those rooms. Um, I feel like there's, that we treat God like that though. Like there's parts of our lives that we don't want to show to God. And there's parts of our lives that we don't want to show to the church because we're ashamed or because we're afraid. Because it's painful. You know, my dad used to be uh, my accountability partner until he, he passed away a couple years ago. And I would call him and say, Dad, man, I blew it as, I blew it as a husband. Or Dad, I blew it as a father. Or Dad, I, I blew it at work. Or Dad, I, man, my thought life, I've been struggling. I was always, I always approached that conversation with a little fear and a little trembling. But I always came away with joy because my dad showed me grace over and over and over again and it ministered to my soul and it helped me to move forward as a person, as a husband, as a father, as a man. It was so good. John uses the word koinonia in describing what our relationship with God and each other should look like. This is a deep abiding relationship. This is relationship built on honesty and vulnerability. This is more than just a quick conversation in the lobby, although you can learn some things in the lobby. I did this weekend. This takes investment. This takes time. This takes work. This is real. We have to earn the right to hear each other's stories. This is what we are called to church. This is what we are called to. This is what relational discipleship is about. This is what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. There's this mixture of, of those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and there's peacemakers, and there's the pure in heart. Like, they got to come together. Like, this is the kingdom that is us together, working together to figure out how to put God on display, how to tell an accurate story of who our God is. And notice what Jesus does when we come into the light and find faults, shortcomings, and failures. He forgives and he cleanses us completely every time. Every time. Every time. When I went to my dad and share these things, when I've gone to care group and shared, when I've sat down with friends, even some of you within the last few weeks, and I just shared some things that I've been wrestling through, some things that I didn't like, what I saw in my own heart, some things that have gotten in a way of relationship, some things that honestly have, have told an inaccurate story of who my God is at times. 
when I've come to you guys, when I've gone to my dad, I found cleansing. I found forgiveness every time. Because I've gone to people that had earned the right to see my vulnerability. They earned the right. I've gone to people that are trustworthy. And so I'm praying, I'm hoping that we are that kind of church. I'm challenging you to be that kind of church. Honesty and vulnerability are the tools for improving, growing, and maturing. This is going to change our marriages, our parenting, our work, our play, our thought life, our dreams, our aspirations, and how we tell the world the story of who our God is. So the implication is this, without vulnerability, growth is handicapped, trust is lost, and dysfunction is fostered. And I don't want that in you, and I don't want that in me. Application is this, learn to value the real you. God didn't make a mistake when he made you. Are you quirky? Yeah. So am I. Like, we are different. We are unique. Our differences are beautiful. They're glorious. They're purposeful. God has brought you here for a reason. I'm grateful that you're part of our community. Value you and value others. Application number two, shite a very bright light in every corner of your life. Let Jesus into every corner of your life. And by letting Jesus, that means in your care group, in those intimate relationships where, where, you can, where people have earned the right to hear your story. Don't hide any of it. Let Jesus come in to heal and to cleanse. Let the church come in to walk with you in that, to journey with you, to be in the mess with you, to say, yeah, me too. Shine a very bright light in every corner of your life. Number three, invest in authentic relationship. The investment is ours to make. It doesn't just happen. I share from a point of vulnerability in care group as the leader of my group to invite others to do the same. It's part of my investment. Now, I don't go on a scale of one to 10. I'll start with a number 10. <laughs> I start with a three or a four or five while other people are starting with a one or two or maybe a minus 47,000 because that's where they're at. That's okay. So I lead the way when I'm leading a group to help others understand what it looks like to invest in authentic relationship. God has called us to relational discipleship. This takes investment. This takes 
being authentic. This takes being in the light as he is in the light. So we have fellowship with one another. Number four, foster healthy vulnerability. Three and four really go together. We, we invest in a relationship. And then authentic vulnerability comes through that. We invest in a relationship. We show up. We earn the right. We, we show people that we care through our actions above our words. And we foster healthy vulnerability because it helps us grow. It helps us mature. It's at this point in the service that we come to the Lord's table and I always start off by breaking the bread and saying this, in the night that the Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And these words, in the night that he was betrayed, it just hit me extra hard this weekend, just think in terms of how vulnerable was Jesus so that you and I can experience the kind of vulnerability that leads to healing and restoration. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this is new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And Apostle John connects this to the cleansing of our soul when we are in the light and we see when we recognize as we come closer to God, we see and recognize the brokenness, the failures, just how different we are from God and how much we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so we take this cup to remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Let's take this together. Father, I am so grateful for the kind of God that you are, that you love the world so much that you sent your son. Thank you, Jesus, for the life that you lived, how you clarified the kingdom, how you called us to discipleship, how you chose to be in a relationship with each of us, how we get to experience you even today through your church, through your people, through the redemptive work that you want to do through those who call upon your name. Thank you for this great opportunity. May you be glorified through the people of Mission Ridge Church as we come into the light together to be healed, to be forgiven, to receive grace, to grow, to mature, and to show the world what it looks like to live for you, our God, our King. We celebrate you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.